Good morning, Keystone. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 38 through 42 is where we're going to be at this morning. Uh, I would guess everyone here uh, recognizes this face uh, because you probably either likely searched for him as a kid or uh, have done that with your own kids or grandkids. Uh, This is Waldo. And I think there's something fascinating about Waldo because the reality is that if someone came into Keystone this morning dressed like this, uh, they would very much stick out, right? Like we'd immediately see that person, they'd stick out to us. But, but when it comes to putting Waldo in a book, all of a sudden he is really difficult to find, like a picture like this, uh, which in case you're looking for help, because you're probably ultimately looking for him right away, it's in the top right corner. Uh, but why is it that, that when we put him in a picture like this, all of a sudden it's, it's difficult for him to find? Because there's so many other things in that picture that ultimately cause Waldo to be kind of crowded out and hidden and lost from our view. And so we have to slow down and look for him. I, I think many in here this morning would say your life is busy, if not extremely busy. And that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's part of why we're doing this four-week series on pausing and resting in the midst of our busyness. But one of the dangers of all of our busyness is that it can ultimately crowd out what is most important in our lives. That it can get our priorities mixed up and we forget what matters most. If we were to stop and ask Jesus, Jesus, what is the most important thing for our lives? I think he'd probably respond like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What's the most important thing in our lives, according to Jesus? Our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. And yet it's really easy for us in the midst of our busyness to deprioritize those things, to miss and forget these areas of our lives. That our relationships become sort of like Waldo in that picture. That that they get crowded out, pushed aside, hidden, and forgotten because we're focused on a thousand other things, maybe even good things. And so this morning we want to focus on this big idea, that pausing provides us with the space to reprioritize our lives around what matters. There's a quote from William Irvine in a book that he wrote where he says this, there is a danger that you will mislive. That word haunts me. Let me read that again. There is a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I really don't want to mislive. I really don't want to mislive. 
And I think one of the benefits of pausing is that it can help guard us against misliving in our lives. And so this morning, I want to point out three ways that I think pausing can help guard us against misliving and prioritize what matters most. And we're going to do this by looking at a story in the Bible that many of you are likely familiar with. Maybe not everyone, but many of you are probably familiar with. Where there's someone who is misliving. Someone who has gotten their priorities out of whack. And we want to see how Jesus teaches us to get our priorities in order through this story. And so let me pray for us and then we'll read it in Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. Father, we, we pray that you'd speak to us this morning. We say that your word is living and active, sharper than, to any, sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's powerful, that you still speak through your word today. And that's why we open it. That's why we want to hear from you. And so I pray that you would speak by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 10. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This story both fascinates me and haunts me a little bit. It it both challenges me and then comforts me. It, It leaves me kind of shaking my head and then forces me to see the one I'm shaking my head at is the person staring right back at me in the mirror. Because it reminds me to see how often my priorities are out of whack and how easily my own heart is led astray. And so I desperately want to hear what Jesus has to say in this story. And the first thing that we might draw out is simply this, that we should pause in order to prioritize being over doing. Now that might seem a little bit abstract kind of as a point. What are you talking about? Being over doing. But, but the overall emphasis of this story seems to be that Martha is more focused on doing something for Jesus than she is in just being with Jesus. And we, we shouldn't miss that what Martha is doing isn't a bad thing in and of itself. Right? She's welcoming Jesus into her home, seeking to be a good host, showing hospitality. I mean, we, we have a lot that we can learn from Martha In a day and age when our homes have become more our personal refuges and less our communal centers, we've got a lot we could learn from Martha and her example. And yet in her effort to do a good thing, we'd say Martha misses out on what is the best thing. That being with God is more important than doing for God. I mean, we we shouldn't hear that wrong, I think, then start to think, well, so obeying God and doing what he calls us to do and, and serving him isn't important? No, it absolutely is. Like there's lots of things God calls us to do in the Bible that we should obey. One of them being to show hospitality. But when doing becomes more important than being, our relationship with God ultimately suffers. 
Because here's what it's so often rooted in when that's the case. It's rooted in us having this performance-driven identity. Or in other words, what I do, what I accomplish, what I achieve with my life is what defines me and what gives me my value and worth, even what I do for God. It's seeking to find value and worth outside of a relationship with God, depending on what we can do. And all the while God says, find your value and worth in what I've done for you, in what I say about you, in your relationship with me. The the gospel is not an invitation into a religious performance. It's not an invitation into all you need to do for God. It's an invitation into God's presence. The gospel is a message about how Jesus has performed for you and I so that we can be free of trying to perform for him or anyone else. And I know for myself how often I miss that and forget that. David Murray in his book, Reset, talks about a health crisis he had that forced him to immediately cancel all his ministry engagements and all he was doing. And he says about that time, now in the enforced stillness, I was hearing a loving and concerned God say, my son, give me your heart, not your sermons, not your lectures, not your blogs, not your books, not your meetings, but your heart, you. I I read those words and like it almost brings me to tears because I think about how often we are consumed with doing and doing and doing and doing more and more and more and more all in the name of God when all the while God might be saying, just come and sit with me. I didn't call you into my family so that you could do things for me. I called you into my family so that you can be with me. I mean, imagine for a second in your own life a scenario with me. Imagine that you invite someone over to dinner to your house, right? And you're really looking forward to just being able to sit around a table with them and talk that you're looking forward to sitting on the couch and drinking coffee with them afterwards, maybe playing a game of settlers before the night is over. And they knock on the door and they they come inside and there's this table with a feast set out right in front of them. And they immediately ask you, where are your cleaning supplies? Uh, they're, They're in the laundry and they go get your cleaning supplies and proceed to dust all your windowsills while you sit at the table. And then they come back and say, hey, hey, where's your, uh, where's your vacuum at? I noticed your floors are a little bit dirty. And they get your vacuum, and they proceed to sweep all your floors, right, cleaning your house. And they come back after that's done, and they say, oh, uh, wh- I noticed one of your walls is a little bit scuffed up. Uh, where's your paint? I want to paint this wall for you. How long would it take us to stop and say to that person, I didn't invite you here so that you can do things for me. I invited you here because I want to be with you. I mean, this story is just a reminder. God doesn't ultimately invite us into a relationship with him so that we can do, 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 but so that we might know him, be with him, and spend time in relationship with him. But we're so prone to miss that and emphasize doing over being. And we shouldn't miss that. It doesn't just affect our relationship with God. 
it affects our relationship with other people as well. That people are more important than projects. That's a gut punch every time I say it. But it's true. People are more important than projects. I mean, notice how Martha treats Mary in this passage. She acts as if serving a good meal is more important than her sister, and her sister is just getting in the way of it. You, you can picture this scene if you just stop for a moment and picture what's happening here, right? Jesus shows up, Mary's sitting down at his feet, and, and Martha's thinking, all right, she'll just sit in there for like 15 minutes, and then she'll come and help me. I'll at least get started. Then 30 minutes goes by. All of a sudden, Martha starts to maybe bang the pots a little bit louder in the kitchen, right? They're extra loud today. Throw, or, or hitting something maybe a little bit harder. Make, make some noise. Maybe Mary will hear what I'm doing in here. An hour goes by. Now, now she starts to give some of those like exasperated sighs in the kitchen. Ugh. Right? Walks by the living room and maybe gives some side glares. Occasionally throws out the, must be nice to just be able to sit. Two hours goes by, and finally she's had it. It's like, Jesus, don't you care about me? Tell my lazy sister to get off her butt and come help me. And even as I picture it and laugh at it in my mind, I immediately see the person I'm picturing as me. Because I think about how often do I get annoyed when people interrupt me based on what I'm doing? How often, as I try to get out of the door in the morning, do I get impatient with my son and frustrated? How often do I see people as getting in the way of whatever project I'm focused on? People matter far more than whatever project or to-do list we have. And it's not to say that those things aren't important, but when people simply become a frustration or an annoyance or a distraction or in the way of what we want to get done, it should signal that's probably a problem for us. And so Sabbath can serve as this weekly reminder. A day off each week can serve as a weekly reminder, ultimately, that God cares more about be us being with him than us doing for him. We should beware of turning the Sabbath and a day off into just one more thing we do for God where we kind of load up all these rules and then congratulate ourselves because we took a day off. Meanwhile, we never spent any time actually being with God. And we should also be aware of kind of doing whatever we want on our day off and yet never actually spending time just being with God, worshiping him. Both are ways to distort the Sabbath. And then the other thing, that people are more important than getting stuff done. And so one of our priorities on a day off might be other people. And maybe that means for you, you need time alone because you need to re-energize to be around people the rest of the week. Or maybe it just means we throw off all projects and to-do lists to sit, laugh, and play with our family and friends. We prioritize doing and getting things done so much throughout our week that for just one day, we should prioritize just being with other people, with God, that that might influence the rest of our week as well. Pause to prioritize being overdoing. We might continue on to say, pause in order to prioritize depth over distraction. This is where I want to translate this story into our modern times. We should 
understand that the Bible is written to a different time and place. And so we should always want to grasp the context it was written to and the people it was first written to. But that should never keep us from failing to translate it into our own times and context. Because God still speaks through his word today. The story tells us Martha was distracted with much serving. That word distracted has this idea of being pulled away by something. And so so here's the picture maybe I want you to have in your mind with that word. A three-year-old child trying to hold on to the leash of a 100-pound dog. You got that image? Like that child just getting pulled, pulled. That's what we're getting at with this word distracted. Martha was distracted with much serving. And Jesus' response was, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Now, let's insert our names into that sentence and change two letters and see what we get. Kyle was distracted with much surfing. And Jesus said, Kyle, Kyle, you are anxious and troubled about many things. I hope you catch my drift there. I'm not talking about a day at the beach. I'm a lousy surfer. I'm talking about screens, technology, and how much time we spend on them and how much they pulled us. Right? I, I probably don't need to read you stats, but I will anyway, because they might be helpful. Uh, a 2015 study showed young adults, and I don't think it's just young adults, I think often we criticize the younger generation when it's probably just as much everyone. Said this study showed young adults were using their phones five hours a day at 85 separate times. And in the study, the people surveyed thought they were using their phones half that amount of time. 2016 study showed the average person checks their smartphone 81,500 times a year, or once every 4.3 minutes. Both those studies are seven years old. I'm, I'm sure those numbers are just up since then. Like if distraction could keep Martha from what was most important, how much more is that the case for us? Rather than spending sustained attention on what matters most, we spend scattered attention in a thousand trivial matters. I think about how much time I wasted this past summer on ESPN or other websites trying to track who Kevin Durant was going to be traded to. Kevin Durant's a really good basketball player, in in case you don't know. How many articles I read with the latest breaking news. Kevin Durant's going to the Phoenix Suns. Oh, okay. No, no, wait, wait, just a minute. He's going to the Miami Heat. Oh, okay. Nope, just kidding. He's going to the Boston Celtics. Oh, that's interesting. The 76ers are now in the mix. Wait, the latest news, the Peckway Valley Boys High School team is in the mix for Kevin Durant? Who cares? Sadly, I do, right? And how easy it was to to go down that road and then think, well, I've got to check if the Eagles made any trades recently, and so I'll look that up. Well, I don't want to leave the Philadelphia Flyers out of the picture. Like, let's see what they're doing this summer as well, right? Uh, Well, I've spent so much time on here, I should probably go to Gospel Coalition so I do something like spiritual while I'm on here. Oh, their front page made me think about that YouTube video I want to watch. Uh, Let me go to YouTube. Oh, YouTube's first thing is a preview for the newest Martin Scorsese movie? Well, I have to watch that. And how instantly a half an hour can be gone, and I have no idea how it disappeared. Now, here's what what I would guess. Even if you think all the stuff I just described in that moment is ridiculous, which it's fair, you can think that. 
you can identify with the feeling of being pulled in and having 30 minutes go by and wondering where in the world did that time go and how in the world did I get where I'm at right now? Why is that? Because our phones and the internet are designed to distract us. They are designed to churn out more things that might hold our attention and keep us looking and clicking and skimming. Nicholas Carr, in his book, The Shallows, said, it is in Google's economic interest, or just put in there, whatever your favorite website is, whatever your favorite app is, whatever your favorite social media platform is, anything at all, it's in their best interest to make sure we click as often as possible. The last thing the company wants is to encourage leisurely reading or slowly concentrated thought. Google is quite literally in the business of distraction. Or, or hear the words of Andrew Sullivan, a blogger, a very lucrative or a very uh, well-known blogger at the time, had a lucrative blog who gave it all up in 2015 because of what the internet was doing to him. He wrote an article for the Times titled, I used to be a human being. Subtitle, an endless bombardment of news and gossip and images has rendered us manic information addicts. It broke me, it might break you too. He says in there, do not flatter yourself in thinking that you have much control over which temptations you click on. Silicon Valley's technologists and their ever-perfecting algorithms have discovered the form of bait that will have you jumping like a witless minnow. No information technology ever had this depth of knowledge of its consumers or greater capacity to tweak their synapses to keep them engaged. Listen, you, you and I are like a three-year-old child holding on to the leash of a 100-pound dog that is trying to pull us away. And if you think that's an over-exaggeration, I just say, really question, what effect has it had on you? How, how powerful are you over the type of distractions that come at you? Now, now let's bring this back into what our story is saying, the Bible's saying here. Distractions will keep us from what is most important in our lives. That's the whole thing with Martha, right? A good distraction, serving, kept her from what is most important, being with Jesus. Distractions will keep us from depth in our relationship with God. Growing a relationship with God takes time. It takes listening to his voice, calling out to him in prayer, processing the things we're facing in his presence, worshiping him throughout our days, listening for the guidance of his spirit. Like all that takes attention, undistracted attention. And perhaps the reason that many of us, including me at times, feel that God is so distant is not because he really is distant, but because we've crowded out his voice, his presence, and his power with a thousand other things and have no time to simply stop and be with him. God says in Psalm 46, in the face of all sorts of things that might distract his people, mountains falling down, waves crashing over the mountains, nations raging. Be still and know that I am God. That there's this connection between being still and quiet and with God and knowing that he is God, relating to him. Martha was troubled and anxious with many things when she should have been focused on one thing. How true is that for us? And then the other thing is that distractions will keep us from depth in our relationship with other people. Martha's in the same house as Jesus and yet is completely distant from him because of what she's doing. 
How often is that the case for us, that we're in the same room with someone else, and yet we're somewhere else completely in our minds? We've been conditioned to expect speed. Like, I expect my internet to be fast. I expect my Amazon delivery to be fast. I expect my ability to catch up on current events to be fast. I expect my YouTube videos to be 2.0 speed. I expect my podcast to come in fast. And you know the one thing we can't speed up? Relationships. Like, relationships cannot be microwaved. They have to be slow-cooked. And they take time, awkward time, time to just sit, time where maybe you're quiet, time where we're asking questions, time that we no longer have because everything else has filled up our time. Distractions will seek to rob us of deep relationships and in the process have us waste our lives on what doesn't matter. C.S. Lewis, before much of the technology we have today, said, and nothing is very strong, strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind over it knows not what and knows not why in the gratification of curiosity so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give them a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. Sabbath is a weapon. It's a weapon where we intentionally focus on what matters most and seek to eliminate distractions from our lives. It's a trench that we dig and stand in and say technology may creak for all our attention, but for one day we're going to say no and focus on what matters more than anything else. I would say we, we should take seriously the idea of digital Sabbaths in our time, that we shouldn't just pause from work and to-do lists and other things, but also from our technology. Because if we don't fight back, technology will seep into all the nooks and crannies of our lives and leave us distracted constantly. Silencing notifications is a way to fight back. Putting your phone in another room is a way to fight back. Probably just turning your phone off is the best way to fight back. Just talking with someone this week, and and they talked about a, a book where the author recommends doing that for one hour every day, one week or one day every week and one week every year. Maybe we can't start with that, but I think we should start somewhere if we're serious about fighting against distraction and focusing on what matters most. And the second thing I might say here too is determine how you want to fill the dead space in your life. Five minutes between projects, five minutes waiting in line, 10 minutes between meetings, 15 minutes on a drive, if we don't plan for and intentionally determine how are we going to fill those spaces, our phones, we will instinctively grab for our phones and they will fill those spaces for us. And so we should think about how are we going to fill them? Maybe it's reading a psalm, praying, taking a short walk, looking outside, trying to strike up a conversation with a stranger. But part of the ways that we determine how we want to take a day off and, and how we want to incorporate pausing in our lives is to ask What matters most? And then craft those times around that. Which leads to the third point. Pause in order to prioritize the best thing. I I love what Jesus says in verse 42. Just picture him speaking to Martha. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. 
do you believe that there is one thing in your life that is necessary? One thing that should cut through the fog of all our busyness and distractions and be a lighthouse that we aim at. One thing that is most important. Because Jesus says there is one thing that is necessary. What is it? It's what Mary has chosen. To sit at Jesus' feet, to be with him, to hear from him, to speak with him, to to process life in relationship with him. This is David's heart in Psalm 27.4. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. When I was in middle school, there was a song that came out by a band uh, called Finger Eleven. Uh, They were kind of a one-hit wonder, and so if you've heard any song by them, it's likely this song. Uh, And they're not a quote-unquote Christian band, uh, but their song was called One Thing. And the song starts out this way. Restless tonight, because I wasted the light. I think, man, isn't that a description of so many in our generation? That we're just restless, wondering if we're wasting away our lives on things that don't matter, and yet we just cover over that restlessness with more distraction. And then the chorus says this. If I traded it all, if I gave it all away for one thing, just for one thing, if I sorted it out, if I knew all about this one thing, wouldn't that be something? It's not what so many people want. Like, is there just one thing that I can order the rest of my life around? One thing that I can say is most important that I'm going to give my life to. And as a church, we should want to scream, yes, there is. There is one thing that can bring rest in the midst of restlessness. One thing that you can fix your attention on that's worthy of all your attention. Jesus, we know that one thing. Not only is he the one thing that's necessary, but Jesus also says Mary has chosen the good portion. It's kind of like a play on words because that's another way for for referring to a meal. It's as if he's telling Martha, Martha, you're so worried about getting this other meal ready. Mary's already chosen the good meal, the best meal, the better meal. What is it? Jesus, right? The the one who says he is the bread of life in John 6. Do do you and I believe that? Not just like nod our heads believe that, but like deep down believe that. That there is nothing better in this life than to be with Jesus, to hear his voice, to be in his presence, to speak with him to know him, to spend time with him? Like, do we really deep down believe it? Because if we do and we say, yes, that's true, then our lives should reflect that priority. Last week, our our family went to the Solanco Fair, and we got there a little bit late. We were kind of rushing, and and we only had like 10 minutes till we had to get to our seats where the parade was starting. So we got there, and we didn't go to the tents looking for pencils and trinkets and whatever else you might find as you walk through the tents. We didn't go to the animals to see how big the cows and pigs were. We didn't go to the tractors to sit on those. Do you know where we went? We went straight to the milkshake line. Right to the milkshake line. Because we knew we've got limited time here. We've got to prioritize our time. And what matters more than anything else? Getting a milkshake. Right? Our priorities shaped how we spent our time. More specifically, Our desires shaped how we spent our time. See, the the main goal in life is not to get rid of all distractions. That's a secondary goal. The main goal is to fix our attention on what is truly worthy 
and worthwhile of having our attention. And, and see, here's the incredible thing. What we fix our attention on will ultimately form us and shape us. When we fix our attention on the news and media and include in there whatever your favorite news and media is, it has a tendency to shape us to be fearful and anxious. Right? You feel that? But when we fix our attention on Christ, he gives us peace. This just in, he has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's with us to the end of the ages. I mean, let that sink down in and bring us peace the next time something else riles us up with fear and anxiety. When we fix our attention over whatever the latest thing is we're supposed to have an opinion about and be angry about, we have a tendency to get self-righteous. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, remember we are sinners saved by grace and he makes us humble. When we fix our attention on social media, it has a tendency to make us focus on all we don't have. But when we fix our eyes and attention on Jesus, he makes us grateful because he reminds us we deserve nothing and yet he's given us himself and all that we have. When we fix our attention in a thousand different directions, it leaves us weary and frazzled and frenzied. And yet when we fix our attention on Jesus, he gives us rest. See, Sabbath is a refuge. It's a refuge that provides us with time to spend with God. Like what we're doing when we gather on a Sunday morning is we're saying we found the good portion. Jesus is better than anything else and that's why we gather to worship him and hear from his word. We're not here because it gets us bonus points in heaven. At least I hope we're not because it doesn't. We're here because sitting at Jesus' feet feet gives us a taste of what heaven is like. There are so many other things we could do on a Sunday morning than come sing songs and hear someone preach for 40 minutes. But we gather because we say we, we, we know what is necessary. We know the one who's the good portion and we want to worship him and spend time with him and his people. But, but time with God shouldn't just be what we do on Sundays. And I'm not telling you anything new here. I know that. It's just a reminder. But we should seek times of silence and solitude throughout our weeks. And depending on your stage of life or where you're in, that, that may be very short times. But we need time alone, undistracted time with God to anchor us, to give us peace, to give us rest, to sit at his feet. John Mark Comer in his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, says the whole world is buzzing with mindfulness. I hear the term, mindfulness, mindfulness, which he says is just the silence and solitude for a secular society. And then he says, okay, sure, but followers of Jesus have been doing this for thousands of years. We just call it prayer or meditation or contemplation or a quiet time with the Lord. Because we know the goal isn't ultimately to empty our minds of all distractions, but rather to fill our minds and our hearts and our souls with what is truly worthwhile, Jesus. Jesus. Here's some good news that I want to end on today. It's this. Our priorities shift, but Jesus' priorities never shift. Our priorities shift, but Jesus' priorities never shift. Our priorities are constantly getting out of whack in this life. In some ways, we are like a two-year-old child trying to get out the door in the morning. I, I never realized how hard it was to get out the door in the morning before I had a kid. A and we only have one kid. 
I mean, shout out to you moms and dads, but especially moms who have like two, three, four, five, or more kids and do it every single day. You are rock stars. Because you know the attention span of a kid is so easily distracted, right? You, you, you tell them, uh, hey, can you go to the bathroom before we leave? And next thing you know, they're hanging on the fridge, right? You, you tell them, hey, hey, can you go put your shoes on so we can get ready to go? And you turn around, they've got their socks off and they're climbing on the couch. Right? You, you tell them, hey, can you go out to the car? And you turn around, next thing you know, Candyland is spread out all over the floor in your living room. What, what's going on? Right? And as, as a parent, it's so easy to get frustrated and flustered and impatient and raise our voice or whatever it is to push our kids out the door. And I think, how incredible is it that though we get so easily distracted that we get so easily off task, that we so easily mix up our priorities, waste our time, and run around anxious instead of being still with God. He never becomes impatient or flustered with you and I. And how incredible is it that though we crowd our lives with so many things that cause us to forget him, he, the one who has more to do in one day, maybe even one hour than you and I have to do in our entire lives, never forgets us. Hear God's words in Isaiah 49, 15 through 16. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Like the story of our lives is a story of us constantly screwing up, getting our priorities out of whack, mixing things up. And yet the story of our lives is the story of Jesus holding on to us, never getting up, giving up on us, and never saying, you haven't sat at my feet in two weeks. How dare you come into my presence now? Rather, he speaks to us with the same compassion as he speaks to Martha. Kyle, Kyle, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. I am the good portion. Come and enjoy me. Father, we pray that you would shape our hearts and minds fix our attention on you, on being with you more than doing for you, on sitting at your feet, and on enjoying the one who is better than anything else we might have in this life. We pray this in Jesus' name.